Well, hey there, friends. I want to welcome all of you across the network as we continue in our not-so-average Joe conversation. This has really been kind of impactful and kind of God's moving in lots of powerful ways across our network as we've been having this conversation, which is really just positioning us to recognize that when we focus on the wrong things, we miss the right things. When we focus on the wrong things, we miss the most important things. And we've used a, a wheelbarrow and a box and a board to help us understand that reality. And you can get online if you missed any of those conversations and catch up on what that means. But when we focus on the wrong thing, we miss the most important thing and we miss the right things. And in fact, Beth has actually been challenging my focus. My wife, Beth, she's been challenging my focus recently, saying I haven't really been paying attention in conversations and even implying that maybe my hearing isn't what it once was, which is just kind of crazy. But I love her, and so I listen patiently to her as she says these things. And I've actually been holding back a little bit on some of my own observations about things in her life. Because to be quite honest, I'm not sure if she's as sharp as she used to be. <laughs> I'm serious. Listen, increasingly and repeatedly, she's been starting conversations with me by saying, did you hear what I said? <laughs> Which is a really odd way to start a conversation. But I love her, so I'm letting it go for now. <laughs> When we focus on the wrong thing, we miss the right thing, the most important thing. And if you didn't get that, the person next to you can just, uh, tell you what that was. It wasn't her, it's me. But let, here, when we focus on the wrong thing, we miss the right thing. We miss the most important thing. And, and this not-so-average Joe conversation is helping us to be positioned to focus on the right things. To focus on trust more than circumstances. To focus on what can be, not just what was or what is. And along the way, we're being positioned to really let God have his way in our heart and life in deeper and deeper levels, understanding that he is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And that's a challenging truth to process, but it puts us at a decision point to really say, are we going to give God more access in our life or not? Are we going to trust him or not? And so we've been looking at the lives of some not-so-average Joes in Scripture. We're going to look at five in total to help us understand how we can live a not-so-average life our, ourselves. And, and we started with Joseph in the Old Testament, where we saw that trust is the fruit of a relationship in which we know we are loved. Out of Joseph, we leaned into Jonah in week two, and we understood that God uses our brokenness to lead us back to him. And then last week, we looked at Job to understand that faith is based in trust, not circumstances. Each of these conversations are rooted in the hopeful and expectant reality that we find in Romans 8, 28 that says that God seeks to work all things for the good of those who love him. That's a wonderful reality. It's a hopeful reality, and it's something that we can rest in, that he seeks to work all things for the good of those who love him. Everything, the expected things, the unexpected things, the, the sorrowful and the joyful, the, the things that we see as opportunities and the things that, that we may actually see as challenges. God is always seeking to work good out of all things, whatever we experience. And, and we may actually begin to struggle with trying to understand how he does that. Especially as we look at a world that's marked by pain and loss and tragedy, we can start to wonder, does he actually work all things for the good? What about the moments where we have contributed to the complexity, where it's been our mess up and our mistake? Does he still work good in those things? And the answer is a resounding yes. It is true even when we fail, when we miss the mark. And we all do that. We all swing and miss. In those spaces, he is still seeking to work all things for the good, whether it's big or small. 
But when we fail, and we all do, we can find ourselves in a place where we struggle. We, we feel embarrassed. We feel ashamed. We maybe even feel disheartened. We can look at that whole scenario and look at it very differently than he does. Because when he looks at us in those spaces, he sees us differently. And we can sit in that space and look at him differently. We can think that God is just some old man in the sky waiting to zap us with a lightning bolt to satisfy his dissatisfaction with our failure. But there, nothing could be further from the truth. See, when we fail, no matter how badly we do, God is more disappointed for us than in us. When we fail, God is more disappointed for us than in us. He loves us. That'll never change. His desire to work good out of all things is proof of that love. And although we all fail, we have and we will, He is more disappointed for us than in us. That's a radical shift for some people to begin to think about who He is out of a posture of love that he's more disappointed for than in. Now, we all fail. Sometimes it's public, sometimes it's private. Some of us fail more epically than others. I just want to give you a couple examples to get you thinking along the way. Here's the first example of an epic fail. This baseball player, swing and a miss, baseball to the face, fail with immediate implications and pain for it. Sometimes our failures have immediate implications, sometimes they're delayed. Here's another example. This diver is dealing with immediate implications of failure. She is too close to the board. It's painful to even look at. We all fail. She's too close. This gymnast in the next picture, too far away. He's failing because he's too far away. We can be too close. We can be too far away. We can fail. We can even go too far like the dude on this bicycle and fail. Trying to impress the ladies. He's gone too far. It's an epic fail. And it doesn't just happen for humans. It happens in the animal world as well. Here's a picture of a dog who failed. He's missing the ball. Fail. This next picture is a dog who misses the mark by going through the wrong spot. It's a fail. And we all fall short. We all fail. Sometimes we're like this hurdler in the final picture where we just fail and fail and fail and fail. We all fail. And sometimes some of us fail more epically than others. But when it comes to things of faith, real failure is expressed in sin. Sin comes from a Greek word, hamartia. And hamartia literally means miss the mark. It can point to failure. It can point to living in error. But it literally means miss the mark. And we all do that. All of our life journeys are marked by sin in some way. And the sin in our lives leads us to live less than average lives. It actually messes with our ability to be in proximity to God. Not because God hates us, but because God hates sin. He, he loves us. He loves you. He loves me. He hates sin. He can't hang in proximity to sin. He's holy. And, and so when we have sin in our life, it actually separates us from God. The good news is because of what Jesus did by his life and death and resurrection, he actually provides a bridge by which we can be reconciled to God. The sin in our life can be, can be removed and we can be purified of that and forgiven so that we can be reconciled when we follow Jesus. Now, here's the deal. The, the worst mistake we can make is to remain in our failure. To not let God work good out of it. Because in that space... 
we focus on the wrong thing and miss the most important thing. It, the, the worst mistake we can make is to remain in our sin. To end our journey in sin. That leads to a less than a average life. A tragic outcome in life. And, and I imagine you actually want a relationship with God like I desire one. One that is marked by being rightly related to him. One where we have his favor. We experience his blessing and the benefits. We get to see him working all things for the good out of our life. Man, I want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. But here's the deal. I recognize that I have failed along the way. I've messed up. I've made mistakes. That can be really disheartening to recognize that. Until I am reminded of the fact that our God is constantly pursuing us out of a heart of love. That he wants to work all things for the good of those who love him. That he's actually trying to position us to live into holiness. He desires our holiness more than our happiness. He wants us to be more like his son Jesus. And therefore, he will position us in a space that allows anything and everything that stands in the way of that to be removed. The apostle, excuse me, in 1 John chapter 1, it actually speaks to this reality. It says, if we confess our sins, hamartia, the missing the mark realities, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is wonderful, and it is the platform by which Romans 8.28 can become reality in our lives. If we confess, if we repent, we can be forgiven and purified, and that's the platform by which God can work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I want that for you. I want that for me. And so today, we're actually going to lean into looking at another not-so-average Joe who was living a not-so-average life. We're going back to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, we find this section in Scripture that lists the kings who ruled and led the people of God in a united kingdom, but also a divided kingdom. And in 1 Kings, we get this list and, and information about these kings who led in the divided kingdom in the north and the south. And, and what's recorded there reads like a bad report card. It's like a bad soap opera and the complexity that they're in because... For 400 years, the people of God, instead of living unified, they lived divided in a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. It was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. For that 400-year period, there were 19 kings in Israel and there were 20 kings in Judah. Of the 19 kings in Israel in the north, none of them were good or godly. Zero. And of the 20 kings in the south in Judah, only eight were good and godly. That complexity led God to allow the people to be scattered and taken into exile because there was just a series of epic failures along the way. But the other thing we see in First and Second Kings is the reality that the people of God could rise from their failures if they turned back to him. That God wanted to work good out of all of that if they would simply lean back into relationship with him. And it's in that complexity that we encounter our next not-so-average Joe because he was a king in Judah in the southern kingdom. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to grab it. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 11. As you're doing that, I just want to give you some context of where we're picking up the storyline because this is one of the darkest times for the people of God in their history. There is a woman named Athaliah who, who reigns as queen for six years. Previously, her husband had been king 
When he died, her son became king. And when he was killed, she took power and she reigned in a reign of terror for six years on a killing spree. Where she was trying to eliminate the line of David, the the monarchy, the, the royalty line. Which the line of David is the genealogy by which we get to Jesus. And she was on a rampage to remove that lineage. And she would have been successful if it weren't for a godly priest, Jehoiada, who grabs one of her grandsons and hides him from her. His name is Joash, and that's our next not-so-average Joe. Because Jehoiada hides Joash, two things end up happening. The monarchy is eventually restored, and the people of God return to faithfulness to him. Now, this story is found in 2 Kings, but it's also found in 2 Chronicles. It's two parallel accounts of the same uh, journey. And we're going to bounce between the two to get a full holistic understanding as we lean into the conversation today. But we're picking it up at the moment where after six years of hiding, Jehoiada hides Joash from his grandmother for six years. And then he steps into being king at the age of seven ruling over the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where we're picking this up. And this is 2 Kings, starting with uh, chapter 11, verse 21. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. Think about that for a moment, especially those of you with seven-year-olds. That's exceptional. Macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets for everybody. That's what that was. (laughs) Chapter 12, verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Verse 2, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> woo woo! That's awesome! He, I mean, that right there we're told the word for right is Yasher, and it's like straight, upright, true, correct. It's a great description of this guy. Now, we don't know everything about Joash, but I'm going to tell you what we do know is that the next eight verses are a not so great, words are not so great eight, I would call them. The the next eight words are complicated. I I wish that the description of Joash would have stopped at did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But it doesn't. Because the next eight words, call them not so great eight, tell us something that is actually not great. Here's what it says. He, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada was priest, the, the priest instructed him. Eight words too many. Those eight words tell us that Joash did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord without Jehoiada. See, once Jehoiada died, Joash didn't know what to do. And, and goodness and faithfulness in the kingdom began to wane. He took counsel from from evil men who led him astray. He ended up worshiping idols and he abandoned worshiping God. Even to the point where he has a prophet killed. Things changed after Jehoiada died. And the ripple of it was so great that that the Arameans, an, an army of the Arameans come into Judah. They defeat the army of Judah, and the only thing that saves Jerusalem is that Joash strips the temple of all of its treasures and pays them in a bribe. Things changed. Joash started out really good, really well, but he never grew up. He starts out great, and he continues to lead really well for about 23 years, but then he actually 
sadly finishes poorly. He starts out above average, but then ends up less than average. And one of the things about Joash for me is he kind of reminds me of Jonah. Because Jonah was someone who lived in extremes. He, he was not really lukewarm or in the middle. He was hot and cold. He, he made noble decisions and terrible decisions. He, he made good decisions and awful decisions. He didn't always make the right decision. Jonah didn't, and Joash doesn't. Where the good thing is for Jonah and for Joash and for you and I is that when God sees us, when he looks at us, he, he, he sees who we are, not just what we do. God sees us for who we are, not simply what we do. He, he is actually looking deeper into who we are than what we're actually engaging in on the exterior. He, he loves us. Remember, he actually loves us. So he's focused on our, on our mind, on our heart, on our soul, and he sees us for who we are, not simply what we do. And he's more disappointed for us than in us when we fail. So even when we make a major epic fail, there is still a way forward. There's still a way to experience Romans 8.28 of God working all things for the good because he loves us. And he sees us for who we are, not just what we do. Paul actually addresses this in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we have this life, we have this mission. We do not lose heart in all the complexity of life. Rather, verse 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. My friends, in failure, we can lose heart. We can get off track in the journey. Yet God provides a way for us to return, and that way is Jesus. Jesus is the way by which we can be reconciled to what can be, not just stuck in what was. When we ask him and invite him to be Savior and Lord, when we confess and repent, he forgives and he purifies. And that's the platform that Romans 8.28 can be played out in our lives. It's through Jesus, and that's a choice. And we all have to make a choice. And when it comes back down to it, God is ultimately looking at who we are, not just what we do. He sees what we do, but he also sees who we really are. And, and for Joash, he appeared to be on the outside by what he was doing, following God, but really he was simply following Jehoiada. So, sadly, he doesn't finish well. And one of the major reasons he doesn't finish well is because he was focusing on the wrong things and missing the right things, the most important things. He, he did not remove or renounce the wrong things in his life. Take a look at this. Back into verse 3. You can jump back or just look here. This is chapter 12, verse 3. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Now, these high places were hilltop platforms where cultic worship was conducted. And the people of God were told to do worship and offer sacrifices in specific locations alongside of the priests. So whenever they went up to these high places to worship and offer sacrifices, they were mimicking pagan practices. And they were allowing pagan worship components to enter into their worship. And it was ultimately leading them away from the heart of God. If we jump over to 2 Chronicles, we get a bit more information about this. 2 Chronicles 24. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. This is the bad counsel. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came on Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 19, although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. 
When we focus on the wrong thing, we miss the right thing. We miss the most important things. And when King Joash and the nation of God abandoned God, he sends messengers, he sends prophets. And one of them is a man by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada. Zechariah was the son of the king's mentor. And when Zechariah comes, it's this beautiful moment, almost a second chance thing of like, look, before punishment, before judgment, turn back. Let God work good out of this. Turn back to him. Let him have your heart. Follow in faithfulness. It's a beautiful invitation to a second chance moment. And you know what Joash does? He has Zechariah killed. That's how far you drifted. Joash has the son of his mentor killed because he was speaking truth about his choices. It's mind-blowing. The drift from a a not-so-average, above-average life to a less-than-average life. It's crazy. But for Joash, along the way, his not-so-average life began to unravel when he started making poor choices. He got distracted. He allowed bad counsel into his life. He chose lesser things. And you and I can do that. We can get distracted. We can choose lesser things. Anytime we stand at a moment to make a decision between a hard right and an easy wrong, anytime we choose the easy wrong, we live a lesser life. And one of the complexities I think we have as humans in a space with hard rights and and easy wrongs is that we actually tend to oversimplify what we want and overcomplicate what we don't. We tend to oversimplify what we want and overcomplicate what we don't. We we tend to overcomplicate the the things we don't want to do and oversimplify the things we do. We do it in our diet. We do it in exercise. We justify the dessert. We justify not going and working out. We oversimplify and overcomplicate to do what we want and avoid what we don't want to do. Let me give you a really basic example of this, of how we oversimplify to do what we want. Chocolate comes from cocoa. Cocoa is a tree, which a tree is a plant, which makes chocolate technically a salad. (laughs) We oversimplify what we want to do. And we overcomplicate what we don't. So even a hard conversation we should have in truth and love, we, we overcomplicate the description so we actually don't have to do it. And we end up in our overcomplicating, oversimplifying, demanding or avoiding based on what we want to do or don't want to do. And we tend to oversimplify what we want and overcomplicate what we don't. Jonah did this. He did it when he ran from God. He did it when he pouted under the plant. And Joash does this. He does it when he didn't remove the high places. Somehow he overcomplicated, oversimplified, not removing them. He did it when he listened to bad counsel. He knew better. And he did it when he killed his mentor's son. We tend to oversimplify what we want so we can do it. And we tend to overcomplicate what we don't so we won't. So in the end, for Joash... He never really established a relationship of trust and dependence with God. He, he never grew up. He instead chose to oversimplify and overcomplicate so that he could pick and choose what he wanted to do. Rather than submitting and listening to God and simply obeying. He wanted to pick and choose, not step into obedience. His relationship with God was one more of appearance on the surface. It was an external thing. And It was through another person, and he never really grew up. But I'm going to tell you, if you want to live a not-so-average life, growing up is essential and required. 
we get a bit of insight into this as we lean into 1 Corinthians 13. This is something Paul wrote. He said, when I was a child, I talked like a, chi- I, I, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. If we want to live a not-so-average life, it requires us to grow up. It requires us to set aside the childish things, the lesser things. It requires us to, to let God purify us, to allow Him, or even by our own actions, to remove the high places so that there's nothing hidden in our lives, no sin. More than once within a journey of life has the presence of sin led to suffering. It always does. In Joshua 7, if you want to read it sometime, there's a man by the name of Achan. And because of the sin in his life, the entire nation, the people of God, suffered because of his sin. And if we have hidden sin in our life, it means we haven't removed the high places. They're still there. And it doesn't just impact us. It impacts those around us, our family, our community, our church. It messes with our whole life. So remove them. Don't let them remain. If you need help removing them, ask God to help you remove them. Confess, repent, be forgiven and purified. Go all the way in. Joash did some good and right along the way, but one of the significant things he didn't do is he didn't go far enough in removing the sin of his people by leaving the high places in place. He left a foothold for evil that led to failure. He wasn't the only king to do that. Jehoshaphat is another example, someone who left the high places in place. But look, no matter who we are, we all need to let God work in deeper and deeper levels in our lives and in our heart until our heart is his. Nothing hidden, nothing withheld. No high places, all the high places removed our heart being his. See, he sees us for who we are, not just what we do. And that's a hard issue. That's a hard issue. And, and we can look really good on the outside. And we, we spend a lot of time making sure people see us and can respect us and don't know the brokenness. And we spend a lot of time making sure we look good on the outside. But the reality is it's what's on the inside that matters most. Because God just doesn't see what we do. He sees who we are. In fact, in the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, He said this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be people, appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Living a not-so-average life links to the condition and the status of our heart. And when we focus on the wrong thing, we miss the right thing. We miss the most important things. So what's our lesson out of Joash? Why was it so important to include Joash in our not-so-average Joe conversation? Well, quite honestly and simply, it's because he failed. And so do we. We all fail. We all fall short, big and small ways. Along the way, we all fail. Yet no matter where we've been or what we've done, God loves He's seeking to work good out of all of it. He is more disappointed for us than in us when we fail. 
he loves. And we really can see him work all things for the good. He, to take the junk of our lives and work good out of it. If we love him, if we trust him, if we follow him with nothing withheld, no high places, nothing hidden in us, all in, all that we are to all that he is. In a space like that, he begins to work good. Jesus declares in, in John chapter 8, he says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, truth changes everything. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. So when we lay hold of truth, we're laying hold of him. And when we lay hold of him, now we begin to be able to process what's right and wrong, and not only know what's right and wrong, but be able to do what's right. When we lay hold of truth, we're actually positioned to live in freedom and fullness. We can live life to the full as we hold to his teaching. Tr the, the truth changes everything. Now here's the kicker. It's a reality that plays out for us, but I see it playing out in Joash's life too. If we are around truth but don't embrace truth, it doesn't matter. If we're around truth but don't embrace truth, it doesn't matter. Let me say that differently. Truth is useless if we're around it but don't embrace it. If we don't receive it. It's ineffective if we have it but don't hear it. Truth, when we're around it but don't embrace it, it doesn't matter. That's what happened to Joash. He listened at first, but because he didn't grow up spiritually, because he didn't embrace truth for himself, he was led astray. So when guys like Zechariah come and speak truth to him, it didn't matter. Because he was already in a posture of defiance against that truth. It's one thing to make a mistake. It's another thing to be defiant. And Joash got to the point of defiance. And whenever we are around truth but don't embrace it, it actually doesn't matter. Because we end up focusing on the wrong thing and we miss the right thing. We miss the most important things. What Joash actually needed to do was to put away the childish things. He needed to grow up and have his own relationship with God. To, to establish a relationship directly with him. And so do we. And when he didn't do that, it became a hard issue. It became a limitation in the journey. He got stuck in a close but not quite relationship and faith with God. And as I process his life, I begin to wonder, where am I in that and where are you in that? Where are you in your spiritual journey? A secondhand relationship with God is a good place to start. It's an okay place to start. But it has to transition and grow up into a direct relationship with him, not through somebody else. It doesn't mean we don't have community. It doesn't mean we move into isolation. It just means that our relationship is directly with God and not vicariously through someone else. Joash never got past that reality. We need to build our own relationships, the, the relationship that, that where the high places are removed, relationships where there is nothing hidden, nothing withheld. We say, Lord, here all I am to all that I know of you, and, and I give it to you. Show me, lean into my life. Point out the places that need to be removed. If you find yourself drifting from God, understand he, he is constantly pursuing you. He's constantly trying to work good out of all things. All you need to do is stop and listen. Let him point out the high places in your life. Uh, confess and repent. Be forgiven and purified so God can work good out of all of those things. If you allow him to point those things out, it's driven by love. He's more disappointed for us than in us. Trust him as you lean into that. Here's how Jesus described that love in John 3. He says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have whole and lasting life, a not so average life. 
God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Joash starts out not so average, but ultimately he messes up. So do we. But there is a difference between making a mistake and being defiant. And Joash lands in a place of defiance. God does want to work good out of all things, but we have a part to play in it. And if you want a not so average life, one of the critical components of experiencing that is giving God the access to your heart at deeper and deeper levels until your heart is his, until there's nothing withheld. All the high places are removed in your life. So confess and repent, be forgiven, be purified. God does work incredible good out of unspeakable tragedy, but he doesn't always orchestrate the tragedies. Sometimes we need to step back from that brokenness and consider our own responsibility in it. Consider, have we left a high place in that context that's creating the complexity? Something that needs to be removed. And if you're processing through your life, thinking, man, do I have a high place? Is this thing I'm thinking about, is this a high place? I, I actually want to give you a helpful tool, just a handful of questions, allow you to do a self-assessment. To say, all right, is this thing a high place or not? Just five questions. Here's the first one. Does the Bible prohibit this action? If you've got something in your life, you're trying to figure out, is this a high place or not? Is it prohibited in Scripture? Is it lying, cheating, stealing, lust, greed, gossip? Those things are prohibited in Scripture. Anything that's prohibited in Scripture is a high place. Remove it. Second question to ask is, does this thing take me away from loving, worshiping, and serving God? What's the impact of that thing? Does it, does it have a ripple that leads me towards God or away from God and drift? Does, does it pull me towards holiness or away? If it's pulling you away, it's a high place. Next question, does it make me its slave? Is the thing that you're processing, does it consume your thoughts? Does it consume your desires? You can't stop doing it. You can't stop thinking about it. It's an addiction. The reality is if that's the case, it's a high place and it's in the way. It's limiting your ability to experience a not-so-average life with God. Next question would simply be, is it bringing out the best in me? Is that thing leading you towards holiness, leading you towards Christ-likeness, or is it leading you back into brokenness, leading you back into shame, leading you back into some form of bondage? And finally, the question, does it benefit others or bring glory to God? Like, if it's doing those things, it's probably not a high place. If it's helping others, leading others towards God, bringing Him glory, that's not a high place. But high places actually become about us. It's about us, it's for us, it limits us. And as you're processing what high places might be left in your world, these questions can help you get to the point to say, I wanna, I wanna see that thing removed. Lord, step into my life and remove it. Joash was good for a time, but he held on to the high places. And because he did that, listen, he wasn't even buried among the kings. We know from 2 Chronicles 24, it says that after the Aramean army came in, after they pulled out, they left him severely wounded. And in that space, his own officials plotted against him to kill him. And they did. They killed him in his bed because he had had, had Zechariah, the prophet, killed. He ends up being buried in the city of David, but not among the kings because of his choices and his trajectory in life. And on top of that, Although he is in the lineage of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, he is not listed in the New Testament in that list that describes from David to Jesus. Because he didn't live a not-so-average life above, he lived a less-than-average life below. 
It's a tragic reality. In the end, he was an evil man killed by evil men because he didn't give God his whole heart. He didn't remove the high places. He didn't let God take the things of his life that were marred by sin and work good out of them. You know, in many ways, it would be really easy to step back and criticize Joash and how he lived. But quite honestly, I think we do a lot of similar things in our own life. He worshiped idols. We may not worship a, a tangible, practical idol, but anything that we prioritize ahead of God, anything that has our heart instead of God having that part of our heart is an issue of idolatry. Anything that gets in the way or more important to us than God can be an issue of idolatry in a high place. We may not have ordered or facilitated the death of a prophet, but I tell you, we tear down those who try to speak truth and love to us. And, and we may have a faith that is actually through someone else instead of directly to God. And we may not actually strip the temple of all of its treasure, but we can take the things of God and scripture and use it for our own gain and oversimplify it because it's something we want to do and overcomplicate it because it's something we don't want to do. We can live in a very similar way to Joash. And Joash did not live an obedient life. Something we talked about before, and even Justin reminded us of it in Jonah, is that obedience is demonstrated in moments, but it's defined over a lifetime. To, to live an obedient life, is de- it's, de- it's pointed out, it's, de- it's determined now in what we do now, how we live now, but an obedient life is defined over the trajectory of a lifetime. And Joash had obedient days and obedient moments, but he did not live an obedient life. Even with a good and hopeful start, Even the best hopeful starts can be derailed by hidden sin, public or private, seen or unseen. The best starts can be derailed by not removing high places. And that actually ultimately happened for Joash. In fact, he did not accomplish the work that God had asked him to do. In fact, he left that work for the next generation. And I want to kind of just lean back in to hear the next part of this journey. And this is not in your note guide. It's not on the screen. I just want to leave you with what we can read about the ripple, uh, the legacy that happened out of Joash's choices. This is in 2 Kings chapter 14. You see, Joash ends up having a son, Amaziah. So when Joash is killed, Amaziah is actually positioned to take over as king in Judah. He's 25 years old when he becomes king. He reigns for 29 years. But here's what scripture says about Amaziah. Verse 3 of 2 Kings 14. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> That's great. But there are eight too many words that follow. A not so great eight. But not as his ancestor David had done. King David. In everything he followed the example of his father Joash. In everything. And get this, listen, verse 4. The high places were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. You want a not-so-average life? The critical component is allowing God to work at deeper and deeper levels of your heart until your heart is fully His. Remove the high places. End it now. End it now for generations to come. Leave a legacy of the opportunity for a not-so-average life rather than a less-than-average life. Give God access. Let him work at deeper and deeper levels in you until there's nothing withheld, until he has your heart. That is a not-so-average life. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for your constant pursuit of us, that you love us, that you see us for who we are, not just what we do. You see what we do, but your love for us compels you to pursue. And you want to work good out of all things, even the stuff we mess up. Thank you for that desire to do that. Thank you for being willing to chase. Thank you for providing a way through Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to honestly reflect on where the high places might be in our lives today and let you remove them or allow you to help us remove them so that we can live into the fullness of what it means to be your children, so that we can live not so average lives and that you ultimately have our heart. So in the next few moments as we sing, I pray that you would show, you would shine into our lives a light that allows us to see high places and we would let you remove it and that we would choose to live a life of love and trust, a life that is not so average because you lead and you direct and we serve at your pleasure. We pray these in the strong and mighty name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, amen.